Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters, and thank you for giving the gift of spending time together as we seek to explore truths from the Word of God and Scripture, that we may come to a better understanding of God's purposes in Jesus, that we can manifest them in our lives. I'm Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And before we begin, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for the blessings of life and all the many blessings that you've given us. Uh, we're mindful of all of those who are currently in distress, and we pray that you would comfort and strengthen them, and for those who are in need, that you, we would provide for them. And as we seek to explore truths from your word right now, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that we come to better understanding your purposes, and that we may glorify you more effectively in your Son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. We consider today Matthew, the 25th chapter, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus is speaking all of these things during his final week of his life in Jerusalem. In Matthew 21-23, through he was teaching in the temple. And then in the beginning of 24, the disciples pointed out the various buildings of the temple complex. And Jesus declared that not one stone would be left upon another. And so when he went to the Mount of Olives later, his disciples asked him three questions about these matters. When would these things be? What would be the sign of his coming and of the end of the age? And so what comes afterward from Matthew 24.4 until the end here of our passage is what's called the Olivet Discourse, in which Jesus answers these questions for his disciples. And the first 35 verses of chapter 24 are consumed with the question of when Jerusalem would be destroyed. And then from Matthew 24, 36-51 would speak of signs that would be true of the destruction of Jerusalem, also of any other day of the Son of Man, and the final day of the Son of Man when he would return, that only the Father knows the day, that it would come quickly, that some would be left and others taken, and they must watch because they do not know when their Lord would return. That if the master knew when the thief would come, he would have been waiting. That the faithful servant who's keeping the house will receive blessings, but the wicked servant who oppresses others when the Lord is away and revels in sin will be cast into the outer darkness when the Lord returns unexpectedly. 
Previously in chapter 25, we have two parables. The parable of the ten virgins in the first 13 verses that reinforce the importance of watching and being ready because no one will know when Jesus is going to return. And particularly there, the importance of remaining vigilant and prepared despite what seems to be a delay, uh, that it takes longer than perhaps was expected. And then in verses 14 through 30, there's the parable of the talents. Um, that ex- emphasizes the expectations that Christians are to be active and bearing fruit for the Lord Jesus here and now to enter into the joy of their master when he returns to settle accounts, so to speak, and that there is great danger for those who prove unprofitable. And so now Jesus concludes this discourse with this vision of the judgment that we have just read. And he begins by painting the scene, that Jesus speaks of the coming of the Son of Man in glory, with his angels, and that he will sit on the throne of his glory in verse 31. Later on in verses 34 and verse 40, he'll refer to himself as the king. This is a very deliberate switch, and we should see the reference to the Son of Man, uh, the human one, uh, the organic one, uh, based in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. In fact, in John 5, 27 through 29, Jesus says he is given the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. He's going to make another self-reference uh, before the high priest Caiaphas in Matthew 26, 64, and very much in a royal messianic context where he uh, associates Son of Man as one who would, would be up in the clouds uh, sitting at the right hand uh, of, of God. And the angels will attend with Jesus. This is also emphasized with Matthew 16, 27, Mark 8, 38, Luke 9, 26, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, and 8. Uh, we show this to show there's a lot of continuity in the way this scene is portrayed in various contexts, and also just to be overwhelmed by that scene uh, of, of Jesus coming back, uh, the human one, and we should never neglect that even though it is messianic, it is an indication of his humanity, and he's going to be attended with all of these angels, a truly awesome, and, and perhaps for many a terrifying sight. And throughout this passage, and, and throughout the context of the final judgment, um, we have the theme of glory is very prominent. Glory is something heavy or weighty. That Jesus is glorified in his resurrection and that he's coming in glory to glorify his people in God. In Matthew 16, 27, Luke, in 19, 28, and in Luke 9, 26. In fact, in Romans 8, 17 through 18, our hope as Christians is that we would be glorified as Jesus is glorified. And it's in Revelation 21 and 22 that John sees that glorification uh, in magnificent terms, where language has failed him, and so all he can do is is describe it in terms of precious jewels and gold and all of these uh, beautiful things. Thrones are seats of power. Uh, it is a display of authority. In Acts 7.56, Stephen says he sees Jesus on the throne already. And also in Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, the idea that he is already uh, a Lord in the, over the creation. And so we're not to imagine that Jesus is only getting authority as the scene unfolds, as is commonly held by those who would hold to a more premillennial or dispensational premillennial viewpoint. It's a picture of Jesus as a glorified authority standing before everyone to render judgment uh, when the fullness of all things have reached uh, their end. In verse 32, we're told that all nations are going to be gathered before Jesus. And this means some have wondered if Israel is going to be included or if this is just a judgment of those who have not been part of the people of God. But when we look throughout the prophetic hope, Israel envisions all nations as coming to some knowledge of Yahweh and held accountable to him, uh, but not expecting Israel to be excluded from that kind of accountability, like in Isaiah 2 and many other passages. 
In fact, throughout the whole time, Israelites had been under consideration uh, in the parable of talents and the parable of uh, the ten virgins and beforehand. We have often talked about them in terms of their relationship to Christians because there's a lot we can learn from them as well. But we must remember that Jesus is speaking this to his disciples as Jews before he has died to inaugurate the new covenant. And there is relevance to the audience to which it is being spoken. Other portrayals of the judgment scene, like in Acts 17, Romans 2 and 14, 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, expect everybody to be present. And there's no expectation that the people of God are excluded from a judgment to come. In fact, in Romans 14, Paul banks on it, insists on it. So we should not imagine that somehow some are here, not others. Everyone is here. And this is what Jesus is trying to emphasize, that he is Lord over all the nations. And he would then separate those of the nations as a shepherd separates sheep and the goats. And the sheep would be on his right and the goats on his left. And that uh, we see in verse 20, uh, 32 and 33. The winnowing here is very interesting. It's not based on ethnicity, as many in Israel would have expected. This is a display that God shows no partiality. Uh, and this is a theme Jesus had throughout Matthew 8, that some of the uh, Gentiles will sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and in, in, in the patriarchs in the uh, great feast, and some of the sons of the kingdom will be cast in the outer darkness. First um, Peter 1.17 also indicates uh, how God shows no partiality. God is considered the shepherd of Israel in Ezekiel 34, and in John 10, Jesus establishes himself as the good shepherd, and we're supposed to see that that means Jesus is God. God's people are the sheep in Ezekiel 34 and in John 10. This underlies Peter's discussion of Christians in 1 Peter 2, 18 through uh, 25. We have, we have gone astray like sheep and now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Now various speculations have attended to why the goats are marked off for condemnation, but none of them have any real foundation in what we know about ancient culture. Uh, goats would often be shepherded with sheep, and that wasn't problematic. Uh, and the reason we point this out is that there's nothing cultural that would lead to an expectation of this kind of distinction, or for that matter, a condemnation of goats. Uh, goats are just as much a part of the ancient uh, diet as, as ancient sheep were. The right hand as commended and positive, and left hand as condemned or negative, is a common theme in language and culture in the ancient world. We see it in Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 2. But there doesn't have to be that connotation always. Um, there's times like in Proverbs 3 and 4 where right and left are parallel in construction and both are problematic. They're supposed to stay on the straight way, not veer to the right or to the left. And in Matthew 20, 21 through 23, when the mother of James and John comes to Jesus, let my two sons sit at your right and left hand when you enter in your kingdom, there's no connotation there that one is in a worse place than the other. They're supposed to both be what we would now call right-hand men. And think about why would we call them right-hand men. Partially these metaphors about you know the right hand of power, but also because there's been a kind of a negative stigma associated with the left um, in language. The word sinister comes from the Latin sinistra, which is of the left hand. Um, so right hand and left hand are primarily marks of separation. And uh, we, would be, we would not be wise to read too much into it. It can exist culturally, but we shouldn't read too much into that. So now we see that there is a sentence of judgment. Jesus first speaks as the king to the sheep on his right. They are blessed of his father, and they would inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the cosmos. The world here is Greek cosmos. 
they are deemed righteous and they obtain eternal life from verse 46. Uh, so the Messiah, the Christ, is a royal figure, and that's why Jesus here is emphasized as king, and of course this is why he's making the judgment, uh, Isaiah 9 and 11, that he would establish justice here. Jesus is God's heir of all things in Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, and it's in him that God's people can inherit the inheritance of God. And this is Paul's whole theme in Romans 8, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, 12, and also in Hebrews 9, 15, and 1 Peter 1, 2, and 3. The kingdom of God in Jesus is predetermined from the beginning of the world, according to Ephesians 1. And so Jesus affirms here the pre-existent plan of God, that it was established when the world was founded, that this is the way things would go. Is it the individual destination for each individual? Not necessarily, uh, but that the kingdom was established from the foundation of the world, that this would be the way things go. So Jesus squarely centers the sheep, as the righteous who obtain eternal life on the day of judgment, which is something we see in Romans 2, 5 through 11, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, Revelation 20 uh, through 22, and many other passages. Jesus would then also speak to the goats on his left. They are the accursed. They are to depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These would go into eternal punishment, according to verses 41 and 46. So they are suffering under the curse of transgression. And the curse of transgression uh, from Genesis 3, 14 through 19 to Romans 6, 23 is death. Alienation, separation from God, the source of light and life. Hell is the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Very clear that this shows that Satan's not ruling over hell, but he's subject himself to hellfire, which is what's expected uh, when John sees uh, the devil cast into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. His angels are likely the demons, fallen angels. Maybe a reference here to the first Enoch narrative's understanding of Genesis 6 that we can also see in 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 1.6 that uh, there's been this place reserved for angels who's transgressed, that they'll be judged and condemned. Eternal fire and eternal punishment are the theme of 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10 and Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Uh, much has been said recently uh, whether the emphasis should be on the eternality of the punishment or the eternality of punishment. Uh, is it that uh, they uh, suffer and then uh, are somehow not extinguished, uh, or that they are indeed tortured for all time? And uh, if we're honest about the evidence in the Bible, it, it it's not very clear either way that you have both of those themes present throughout. Uh, and either way, it's not a pleasant fate and not what anyone should want for themselves or anyone else. And so this is this that aspect of the judgment, the fact that you've got the righteous going to eternal life and the wicked going to punishment uh, is very much consistent with all other portrayals of judgment. It's the basis of judgment here that is um, shocking, um, compelling to many, uh, and concerning for many. And why is it in this passage that the sheep are different from the goats? And the sheep are entering eternal life, but the goats in eternal punishment. And it's the same reason. Jesus declares he was hungry. He was thirsty. He was a stranger. He was naked. He was sick. He was in prison. The sheep, when they saw Jesus hungry, fed him. Thirsty gave him drink. A stranger took him in. Clothed him when naked. Visited him when sick. And came to him in prison. When the goats, quote-unquote, saw him that way, they did not give him food. They did not give him drink. They did not take him in. They did not clothe him. They did not visit him. They did not come to him. 
That's the substance of the judgment in verses 35 through 37 and verses 42 through 43. And both are very surprised at this. The, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, or in prison, and give to you or not give to you? In verse 37, 38, and 44. Now, this is, in a sense, an attestation of the innocence of the righteous. Uh, they went about doing good, and they didn't think much of it. Matthew 6, 34, their right hand didn't know what their left hand, left hand didn't know what their right hand was doing, excuse me. Galatians 6 and verse 10, they went about doing good to all men. Uh, and it's interesting here, keeping in mind, the accursed confess Jesus as Lord. And of course, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, uh, we're told that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord of the glory of the Father. So it's possible to imagine that a good number of these wicked never confessed Jesus as Lord before now, but they're being forced to grapple with Jesus as Lord now. But you would think that people like that would have automatically recognized, yeah, well, we didn't do that. Notice their question. When did we see you this way and did not help you? gives the impression that at least a good number of these quote-unquote goats always profess Jesus as Lord. And we're given the impression here, and I think Jesus intends to give us this impression, that if they had known that it was Jesus, they would have provided the assistance and the support. They would have acted differently if they had known it was the Lord they were assisting. There's also a strong possibility here that we should read here that this device, well, when did we know these things? Is a device to show this was not done for reward. That uh, the Christians weren't here thinking, well, I'm going to do this because this is how I'm going to be saved. Um, which would kind of miss part of the point. And Jesus' answer is similar for each. Inasmuch as the sheep provide unto the one of the least of these my brethren, or as much as the goats did not provide to one of these the least, they did or didn't do it, to Jesus in verse 40 and verse 45. And that's really the powerful moment here. Uh, you did it as you did it to one of the least, or didn't do it one to the least, you did it or didn't do it unto me. So Jesus here is centering the judgment scene in the treatment of the least among them. And he identified himself with those who are least among them. Which leads to the question, the question that's been here for some time, who are the least of these, my brethren? Uh, there are some who have tried to consider them to be missionaries, uh, looking at a technical definition of brothers as those going out proclaiming the gospel. Something like taking uh, what John says in 3 John 1, 5 through 8 and making that a class. Uh, the brothers, i.e. those who go and preach other places. This doesn't fit the context at all. It's very limited and quite frankly chauvinistic restriction. That's not in keeping with Jesus' much more universal concern. Uh, many, many people consider brothers here as an appeal for the people of God. And this goes back somewhat to Matthew 10, 43-42, where we have something like this, and the consideration that the people of God are brothers and sisters of Christ and of one another, which we can see in Hebrews 2, 11-18 very vividly. And certainly, to be honest, the uh, poorest among the people of God would be included in this class of the least. But are they the only ones who are the least of these? Now, many consider the least of these as any and all poor people. And there's a lot to commend that view. In Galatians 6 and verse 10, Paul says that Christians should do good to all people, especially the household of faith. And yes, it's good and right to emphasize what 
what uh, Paul will emphasize, especially the people of God. But he also says to all people, and the reason why it's also compelling is that as even in the way it's said, you know, it, the righteous are commanded because they did the least of these my brethren. But then you look at verse forty-five, as you not did least of these, you know. Would you expect that the un the, those the goats are being condemned because they did not provide to Christians in need? It's a very strange form of condemnation. That we're just to understand that they should have given to anybody they saw in need, which would then mean so you're telling me that Christians are only supposed to give to Christians in need again? That exclusivity there doesn't sit well with Galatians six ten anyway, and it just creates a very strange tension here. And we need to keep it in mind with Jesus' other teachings. In Matthew 5, 43-48, Jesus talks about how if you do good to only those who do good to you, what is that to you? Even Gentiles do that. If you love only those who love you, what is that? You know, Gentiles will, will greet those who greet them and do good to them. But you need to be, to be perfect, to be more like your father, and you need to do good to all. And this is not at all an expectation to somehow not provide for the people of God. If anything, it's to assume the taking care of the people of God. If indeed God is love and we are to love one another as God has loved us, and we are loving one another, i.e. in John 13, uh, in First uh, John 4, um, then we're going to be taking care of one another. It's just almost axiomatic. It should be automatic. There is no inherent virtue if we truly are demonstrating love to one another, for us to take care of one another. It's just be automatic if we truly love one another. So, uh, to really go beyond, like what Jesus would suggest in Matthew 5, would be not just to provide for the least of these among us who are, we are beloved as Christians, but of all people. The ones that are the, the untouchables in society. And we, all, we, we have to go no further than the parable of the Good Samaritan to see that Jesus is always trying to disabuse us of these forms of chauvinism where we uh, provide a preferential uh, choice towards some people and not others. Now, to be clear, Jesus' teachings here are not bizarre. Uh, we have some Talmudic uh, instruction that uh, those who do not visit the sick are considered as murderers. Those who visit the sick are delivered from Gehenna. Uh, some of the Midrash interpretation uh, expect a similar kind of judgment like we see here, um, that to give food to the poor is to give food to God. And even pagan writings envision judgment based on how uh, less fortunate people were treated, uh, from the Egyptian Book of the Dead to Greco-Roman moralists. So, Jesus, here in Matthew, this is where Jesus' instruction to the people ends. Um, in fact, there's not even a whole lot more instruction to the disciples than this. Um, and we see a very interesting parallel, a very interesting binary, where Jesus concludes this instruction with this powerful testimony of the return of Jesus, the judgment to come, Jesus in great power, and in verse 1 of 26, again, we have chapter divisions for, for reasons of, of, of our reference, but they don't necessarily uh, reflect breaking in context. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The Son of Man, who they just heard, is going to stand in judgment over the entire world, is going to die the most degrading, humiliating death. And then in verses 3 through 5, uh, the, the plans are in place, the machinations are in place that will lead to that execution. And this leads us invariably to Calvary.
So what are we to say about this, uh, this, this scene here? And that's the first thing we need to talk about is, is this an actual expectation? Is he speaking in a parable? And it's really an unhelpful binary to talk about it that way. Because what Jesus is saying here aren't exactly like a parable. But we should have no reason to expect that this is exactly how the judgment's going to look. Because here's the reality based upon looking at all kinds of passages. A day of judgment is going to come when the Lord Jesus is going to return in great power. On that day the righteous will obtain eternal life and the wicked are going to suffer eternal punishment. In Acts 17, 30-31, Romans 2, 5-11, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10, Revelation 20, 11-22-6, and many other passages. Without a doubt, sheep and goats represent a parabolic element. As does judgment purely on the basis of whether assistance was given to the least among them. The idea that the judgment is based upon whether assistance is given to the least among them is an attempt to emphasize something of importance. It is not an attempt to make an absolute claim. After all, there will be among the goats people who provided uh, some assistance at some point to those in need, but did not otherwise know God or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there very well might be among the sheep people who came to faith in the Lord Jesus and stood before him, and they never really gave to those in need because they may not have had opportunity, they may have come to faith uh, without anything to give, or because they uh, came to faith just before they died, or something of the sort, or God showing mercy on certain people. So again, to take this as an absolute way that the judgment's going down is to go beyond the expectation of Jesus or Matthew. Everything, in truth, really, in Matthew 24 and 25 represents scenes of judgment. We saw that the first 35 verses are consumed with the judgment on Jerusalem. We see the judgment of the unprepared in Matthew 24, 36 through 25, 13. In Matthew 25, 14 through 30, a judgment based on profitable service. And so here, judgment is being given on the basis of whether service was given to the least among them. This last one just looks more like a judgment scene because it's more universal, it's more obvious, it's more explicit. But the idea of judgment is being given in all of these. And so we should see that each one of these judgment scenes through parables and visions, uh, scenes, however you want to look at it, are giving you dimensions, are, are, are helping to make what will happen at the end of time uh, exist in a more 3D way of looking at it, as opposed to a flattened out view, well, it's just this or it's just that. And so we should look at all of these as, as, as showing us something, not using one to the exclusion of the other, not suggesting, as they do in dispensational premillennialism, that this is a multitude of judgments, that these are all the same judgment scenes shown in different perspectives. And it's very important that for us, who are, who are likely listening here, uh, the temptation is less to emphasize the serving of others to the point of neglecting uh, obedience, doctrinal faith concerns. It's the opposite. That In our conversations about judgment, we very much make it about, did you obey the Lord Jesus? And make it about confessions of faith and things and neglect this aspect of, of serving others uh, who are in need. We should not neglect the scandal here of what the judgment before the throne of glory looks like. The basis of the judgment in this scene is scandalous and shocking and uncomfortable for a lot of people. That salvation would be up and down based on assisting the least, the least among everyone. You know, the immediate questions. What about faith and trust in God? 
Is this work salvation? It should at least be restricted to the least of these who are my people, the people of God, right? And the first thing we need to do when we start wanting to uh, restrict or explain away these things is to stop and ask ourselves, why do we find this judgment scene so uncomfortable? What is so scandalous about it to us? Because the sentiments in it are in Jewish literature of that day and afterward. It's in Greco-Roman moral exhortation. It's in the Book of the Dead of the Egyptians. And after all, in Galatians 2 and verse 10, uh, the apostles, the one thing they insisted when they talked to Paul was to remember the poor. And he said that was the very thing he was eager to do. In Galatians 6 and verse 10, to do good to everyone, especially the household of the faith, but do good to everyone. It's not like uh, we can somehow separate out assisting those in need from serving Jesus or obeying Jesus. But the reason it's really scandalous, it's a full-throated insistence to embody the Lord Jesus. So many Protestant traditions have put way too much emphasis on justification by grace and not works, as seen in Paul, without holding firm to that moral and ethical transformation that is demanded by joint participation in Jesus, not just by Jesus, but even Paul himself. Now, for others, it's the scandal having to care for the least of everyone, because it's a whole lot easier to take care of people like you. And the amount of need out there is wide and large. And you start looking at it, and it's, you're easily paralyzed in, in fear and inability. That you, you, There's just too much. You just can't do it. Now, Jesus does not expect this passage to be considered in a vacuum. It's not to be considered a dogmatic, definitive declaration of the nature of the Day of Judgment. It's one picture among many, adding an important emphasis without denying any of the other features. So if we're going to prove faithful disciples to Jesus... We're going to have to admit the struggles that we might have with this portrayal of judgment and what it means for us. Because it might mean that if, if this is really uncomfortable for us, it might mean we're more a goat than a sheep. And that should be a call of, for repentance for us. Uh, so that we uh, reflect the attitude of the sheep more than the goats. And that's another major shift in the portrayal of judgment here, is from particularity to universality. You know, we looked at the other judgment scenes in other times, uh, Matthew 24 and 25. They have the people of God in view, whether Israel or the people of God in Christ. But here, in verses 31 through 46, the scope is widened to include everyone of all the nations. And the division is not based on ethnicity, but on whether compassion was had and manifest upon the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. In Romans 2, 5-11, Paul makes a major thing about the nature of judgment and that God is impartial in judgment. And it's that way here. We're not judged by class or category. We're judged on the basis of what we have done in the flesh. And for the, another emphasis, we have to keep saying, it doesn't mean we earn salvation. We recognize that our standing before God is always and only through faith in Jesus. But to have faith in Jesus is to make concrete manifestation of that trust in our faithfulness and embodiment of Christ to others. So we can see it in Romans 1.5 and Romans 6.14-23 uh, from Paul himself. Peter emphasizes this point in 1 Peter 1.17. Uh, we can never get complacent in faith, believing our status will save us. That if we call upon God, the God who uh, renders to each according to what he has done, with impartiality, we need to conduct ourselves in our time of sojourn with reverence. That we need to remember we're not going to be saved because we are uh, Christians. Because we're Americans, because God loves us, because of some other you know, category situation, uh, God is not does not show partiality. That if we are going to be saved, it is because we have uh, put our trust in in His Son and have sought to embody Him in all that we do. 
Now, there's a true scandal in Matthew 25, 31-46. It's already on well-trodden ground. The idea that Jesus, the Son of Man, the King, would identify himself with the least of the people. People have always expected kings and dignitaries to hobnob with the elite. Yet Jesus came as a peasant, and he lived among peasants. He identified the marginalized and those deemed unclean, and thus he was condemned in Matthew 9, 9-13, 11, 16-19, 26, 1-4, and Luke 1, 1-80. All of these things are made evident. And we're to be remembered and to be told that Jesus embodies God's character. And God has always maintained concern for the disadvantaged. Consider in Isaiah the condemnation of the rulers in, in chapter 1, verses 10-17, through 17, uh, that they are not pro- providing for and giving justice to the fatherless, the widow, and helping the oppressed. And if we want to maintain relational unity with God in Christ and participate as part of his body, we also need to maintain care and concern for the disadvantaged. And the whole point of this scene is that it's a lot harder to turn aside from the poor and marginalized when we recognize that we're supposed to see Jesus in them. And this is getting us really to the point of all of this. It's very unfortunate how when we talk about scenes of judgment, we make them about eschatology in the sense of end times, and it becomes this argument about what's going to happen in the future. Because Matthew 25, 31 through 46, just like Matthew 24, 36 through 25, 13 before it, is not really about the end as much as it is about the here and now. Because whenever this is going to happen in reality, however that scene is going to look, it's all over. The basis upon which we will stand on whatever side of the Lord Jesus, or whether we will even be able to stand before him at all, is based upon what we have done now. And these scenes are portrayed for us very much the same reason why Ebenezer Scrooge received visits from the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future in A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. It's an exhortation to reform ourselves now so that we may enjoy a more happy eternal fate. So what is it that Jesus is after in Matthew 25, 31 46, in this judgment scene before the throne of glory, he is after compassion for one's fellow man, that we would see Jesus in them, that we would not treat them with derision, shame, contempt, or as unclean, to not just walk over them like other people do. Now, if we would feel this way about brothers or sisters in Christ, that uh, scandal is magnified. Because what have Christians been known for from the beginning? In Acts 2, in the earliest church, they sold what they had so that none among them would have need. In chapter 4, same thing. That's why Barnabas is commended. In Galatians 6.10, that emphasis to especially do good to those of the household of faith. Uh, that we are to recognize each other as the body of Christ and that we therefore weep with those who weep, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, so we have the same care for one another. And First Timothy 5, 3-16, that provisions were made to provide for one another in need. And 3 John 1, 5-8, when um, John commends the Christians for taking care of uh, brothers going out and proclaiming the gospel. But if we just show love to our family, whether it's just our physical family or spiritual family, what is that to us? Because don't even the pagans love those who love them? If we would obtain life, we must be like the Father as we see him in the Son. We must feed the hungry. We must give drink to the thirsty. We must clothe the naked. We must visit the sick and the imprisoned. We must welcome the stranger. Because when we do that, we do it to Jesus. Now, 
if we give financial support to these things, we are jointly participating in that work. That's a theme throughout the New Testament. But if all that we take away from this passage is that we should fund normal co- noble causes, then we've really missed the mark. Because there is something more when we personally, personally participate in these things. To quote-unquote condescend to meet the needs of one fellow man. And when we do that, we might realize that we are the ones who are as transformed as those whom we are quote-unquote helping. Uh, Though we realize that it is supposed to be a joint participation and sharing in life. And that uh, we may needed that uh, lesson in humility uh, to help us and guide us. After all, uh, the scene of judgment before the throne of glory has proven to be a clarion call and an anchor for many in their drive to relieve the oppression of the poor and the marginalized. And may it be for us as well that we may be the sheep and not the goats on that day of judgment. Let us again go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for all that you've given us, and we realize that the the blessings of life and the blessings of prosperity you've given us are stewardship, that we may uh, be able to provide for others as you have provided for us. And Father, we are humbled by what we have seen uh, in the scene that your Son has painted for us, and we pray, Father, you would give us the strength and the wisdom and the discernment to be able to live as the sheep, to put our trust in in you through Jesus, to commit ourselves to embody your Son in all things, and thus, as we have opportunity to provide for the needs of those who are poor and marginalized and oppressed, of course, always providing for one another as faithful who are Christians in your kingdom, uh, but uh, even looking out all the more so for those who are out in the world uh, who are in distress, that we may bring uh, your love to them and that we may... Uh, see your son in them and uh, love them as you love them and provide for them as you would have us provide for them and that we may uh, guide them to you and, and strengthen them and sustain them in you. Direct and guide us in all of our ways. We pray these things in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're so thankful that you've joined us. We uh, hope you've been benefited by this. If so, we encourage you to share this podcast with uh, others and, and subscribe to it wherever you found us. Uh, if you'd like to talk more about these things or other things, please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or on social media. And may the Lord guide, bless, keep, and direct you until we're able to meet again.